And it's good to see all of you here on this bitter cold Sunday. It's uh, warm and comfortable in here and it's good to be together and uh, we'll be strengthened for the, the cold days yet to come. We'll remember the joy of the fellowship in this hour. I want to continue a series that I started a couple of weeks ago and in the bulletin, uh, I did not proofread carefully enough, the service road was actually the title of last Sunday's message. The title of the series is Going Home by Another Road, and today we're going to talk about the back roads versus the interstate. And uh, to do that, to begin that process, we're going to use the lectionary reading for this Sunday in Epiphany. It's from John's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. A most familiar story. Maybe we'll hear some new things in this story this day. Would you stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel? John 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Two weeks ago was Epiphany Sunday and we talked about the visit of the Magi to see the Holy Child. And after visiting the Holy Child, they went home by another road in order to avoid the wicked King Herod. Last week, we looked at the baptism of Jesus' story from Luke's gospel. Jesus was not baptized to wash away sins. There were none. He was in his baptism being set aside, being commissioned, being ordained for the beginning of his ministry. His feet were placed on the service road, a road that would lead him to a place where eventually he would kneel down and wash the feet of his friends, his followers. Today, the second Sunday after the Epiphany, I want us to consider or reconsider because we've all heard this story. Most of us have heard it hundreds of times. The story of the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, a story unique to John's gospel, as many stories are. Cana was one of those small villages that would have been missed by most folks who insisted on staying on the interstate instead of taking the back roads. Oh, the things we miss when we're always in a hurry. There's something to be said about the back roads. 
a few years ago, uh, three or four years ago, I subscribed to a magazine that I stumbled upon called Georgia Backroads. And being a native Georgian, I fell in love with the magazine quickly and have read every issue since then, most of them cover to cover. And there's some great articles there. A couple of years ago, there was one about a guy who was taking the back roads. It's called Back Roads to Blairsville, and it was written by a guy named Skip Lowry. And Skip Lowry was fond of taking the back roads and avoiding the interstate. So let me share with you just a brief glimpse at the beginning of that article, and then we'll move on. He said, I know it's a little out of the way, my neighbor argued, but it's quicker to come up I-75 to 575 and cut across 515 from Blue Ridge, and that way you don't have to cross Blood Mountain. That neighbor, he said, is from the Daytona area, as are my wife and I. When he said what he did about the interstate through Atlanta, I told him that we went that way once <laughs> and never will again. The main reason, he said, is, simply, is not just an aversion to interstate driving. The tension generated when trying to keep pace with others who are rocketing by at 90 miles per hour. And, of course, the fear of getting caught in Atlanta traffic. That's all I said, but later he said, I thought of other reasons to take the narrower, the two-lane roads, the back roads. First, let me go back to the neighbor. He said the Atlanta route was quicker, which echoes the goal of so many Americans, saving time, getting somewhere ASAP as soon as possible. But what my wife and I realized, he said, is how much more there is to seeing and doing along those byways and those back roads. Once we quit worrying about time, quote, wasted, and began to realize that the journey was part of the destination. His article goes on to describe many of the sights and the sounds and the things they experienced along the way. And he concludes by referencing a place in Georgia where I spent four years of my ministry in the early days of that ministry, four full-time years at a little four-point circuit in Wilkes County in Washington, Georgia. But he said this, he said, for our next trip, we were thinking about following the usual Georgia Highway 10, US 78 route to Washington, Georgia, but we'll skip the bypass and spend a night in town before we go on. We want to do this, he said, because on a previous trip to Washington, we, it was on a whim, and in our short time there, we realized that like so many other towns, Washington was full of neighborly southern charm, too much to see through a car window. And he's right. And I know that unless you're going to Washington, Georgia, you're not going to Washington, Georgia, you're not likely to stumble up upon it. It's a long way off the interstate. And toward the back of this magazine, there's another article about the back roads, but we'll save that for another day. For today, I want to circle back around to Cana. The name for this Galilean village probably in Hebrew means reed, R-E-E-D. In the New Testament, Cana is mentioned only in the Gospel of John. The location of Cana is uncertain. Some ancient literature mentions two possible locations for this little town. One of these, four miles from Nazareth on the road to Capernaum and Bethsaida. And the other site is eight miles northwest of Nazareth. Recent excavations have led some scholars and archaeologists to believe that's probably where Cana was, the Cana referenced in our passage. Neither site would be visible from the interstate, so to speak. In John's Gospel, first two signs of Jesus are located in Cana. 
As a result, in the tradition of John's gospel, Cana emerges as the initial focus or the the locus of Jesus' ministry in contrast to Matthew, Mark, and Luke who focus a lot of his ministry in a place called Capernaum. But for our purposes today, I want us to think about what would happen if we had stayed on the interstate and missed this little town of Cana. What if we had taken the bypass? Only the back roads can take you to a place called Cana and to a remembrance of the miracle that occurred there and what that miracle may mean for all of us even today. In John's gospel is where this story is told. And this miracle occurred during a wedding shindig, a a party of sorts, a big feast. Unfortunately, identifying the probable historical site of Cana doesn't make the story any more lucid. It still can be a bit difficult. 19th century explorers were busy trying to find out exactly where Cana was, and many 19th century biblical scholars were trying to interpret this passage, and they were troubled, I read in one source, by the, quote, vulgarity of this scene and Jesus' activity there. To them, the story of the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, especially the remark of the steward after he had tasted the good wine, implied that Jesus was keeping company with all these drunken guests and that he had contributed to a celebration that would have been more appropriate for the wine god Bacchus than it was for the Lord God of Israel. This whole scene to these scholars did not seem particularly edifying. Thankfully, Folks have been able to move a little bit beyond those narrow, moralistic, legalistic, judgmental way of thinking and have found many ways to embrace all the good that is found in this wonder-filled story. The story of the wedding at Cana follows the standard form of a miracle in the New Testament setting. Preparation for the miracle, the miracle, and the conclusion. A lot of the miracles fit into this, this same pattern. Within this traditional form, the four Gospels have planted hints at the story, the fourth gospel, I'm sorry, has planted hints that the story is to be read as more than a typical miracle story. In John's gospel, they're referred to sometimes as signs and they point beyond themselves to to greater, deeper truths. The reference to Jesus' hour in verse 4 and the glory, signs, and faith in verse 11 point beyond the particulars of this story to the overall theology and thinking of John's gospel, which is, is different in some ways. In addition, the placement of this miracle at the beginning of Jesus' ministry seems to add significance to it. The miracle at Cana is the inaugural event of Jesus' ministry, according to John. Jesus begins, inaugurates his ministry with a vivid enactment of all that he has to offer. John's gospel provides us only with some essential details. When was this wedding feast taking place? On the third day. Where? In Cana of Galilee. Who was there? Jesus and Jesus' mother and his followers. They were all invited. The reference to the third day here has generated a lot of conversation across the years. And let me share with you one insight that I learned a few years back from one of my favorite teachers. On the third day, people used to rack their brain and say, the third day after what? Because every day is the third day after something, I suppose. But on the third day, and I heard that 
in Jewish folklore, that would have been a Tuesday. It would have been the twice-blessed day. And this is the reason in the creation accounts, on the third day of creation is the only day where God says, and it was good, two times. So in Jewish folklore and tradition, it became the twice-good day or the twice-blessed day. Tuesday, in our way of thinking, is how we would refer to it. And when the early folks who heard this story or who read about it heard on the third day, they'd say, well, of course that's on a Tuesday. When else are you going to get married? Just as a little aside, I think in all my years of ministry, I've had one wedding on a Tuesday. It didn't work out so well. And, uh, so we hadn't tried that again. But... Uh, but that's sort of what's behind, and I believe that that's what's behind this on the third day. It was, it was on a Tuesday, and many Orthodox Jewish weddings are still on the twice-blessed day. Speculation on what lies behind the other details is, has always been there. Why is Jesus' mother there? Who invited Jesus? But we can get so caught up in that that it runs counter to the meaning of the story and we miss out on the the real point. Everything is subordinated to the heart of the story, the miraculous transformation of the water into wine. Now the preparation for the miracle establishes the problem that will evoke the miracle. The problem is they've run out. They've run out of wine. And the shortage is communicated to Jesus by his mother. It's also interesting to me that in John's gospel, Mary is never called by name. And some would say that it's the fourth gospel. It was written later. By then, everybody knew her name. So why did that have to be included in the story? But always the mother of Jesus, never Mary. Jesus' mother assumed her son would take care of things. And his words to her seem harsh to many of us. They do to me. I think, goodness, I would not talk to my mother like that. Woman, what concern is that to you and me? In other words, mama, mind your own business. But his words really are not rude as much as they are words of disengagement or distancing himself from the family relationship here. Not even his mother has a privileged claim on Jesus. In John's gospel, Jesus is the Christ from above, the Christ in charge. And not even his mother tells him what to do. The reference to Jesus' hour explains why Jesus adopts a posture of disagreement is a kind way of saying it with his mother. While hour, the word hour is used to indicate the passing of time, it also means the hour or the time for Jesus' glorification. That is, in John, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. The preparation for the miracle concludes with the words of Jesus' mother to the servants, do whatever he tells you. A vote of confidence. He'll get this right, just do what he tells you. She has not been dissuaded from her initial position that Jesus ought to do something about the wine, but she acknowledges that the initiative for what's going to happen belongs to Jesus. It's not her call. It's his. She continues to trust his ability to act, but she will not try to curtail his freedom. And we could slip off here and talk for a while about that sometimes treacherous, difficult relationship between parents and adult children, but maybe another time. 
The miracle itself begins with the description of the water jars, how many jars there were, what they were composed of, uh, their purpose, and their size. The jars, we believe, ranged anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons in size if they were filled to the brim. So Jesus turned an astonishing quantity of wine into this quality wine. The extravagant portions have anticipated in some ways the extravagance of feeding 5,000 folks and that would come later in the gospel. In both instances we see the super abundance of gifts available through Jesus. Now in the Old Testament an abundance of good wine is a sign. It's an image of God's love and, and God's presence and, and God's power, God's new age. And this suggests that our story can be read as more than the first act in Jesus' ministry, also fulfillment of Old Testament hopes, the opening act of God's promised salvation. And then back for a moment to the words of the steward in verse 10. While appropriate enough, they are sort of on the surface of the miracle. You remember he said, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have, excuse me, the guests have become drunk. Not what's happening here. (laughs) But you have kept the good wine until now. The central act in the story of the wedding at Cana is the miraculous transformation of the water into wine. And folks today, we are very rational for the most part, scientifically, technologically oriented. And these stories sometimes are puzzling or embarrassing, and they even offend some folks. But the essence of any miracle is that it shatters conventional expectations and explanations. And this miracle is no exception. Those of us hearing this story, they must be allowed to struggle with what this miracle says about Jesus. Now, the contrast between the responses of the steward and the disciples can help us interpret and appropriate this story. We distort things and oversimplify things when we assume that first century people would not have been impressed or moved or touched by this miracle. It's not like folks came home back in that day and sat down at the dinner table and started talking about what their day was like and said, oh, well, I saw three or four miracles today. I saw this and I saw that. It was not a common thing then either. It's not now. But the steward is perplexed by the sudden appearance of wine of such quality. So he summons the bridegroom. He summons the one, I believe, who is is paying for all of this and... He assumes there must be some conventional reason for it. There's got to be some rational explanation. This is just not making sense. But rational exclamation can miss the point. Jesus and his disciples, by contrast, saw what was going on. They saw the abundance of good wine as a sign of God's presence among them. And they recognized in the flow of that wine and in the pouring of that wine, they recognized Jesus as the one who brought God to them. This miracle represented the breaking down of some boundaries, the breaking of boundaries, the inbreaking of God into their lives early in Jesus' ministry, showing them who he was and what he was about. The steward tried to reshape the miracle to fit his former categories, while the disciples allowed their categories to be reshaped 
by the miracle, by the transformation of water into wine. And so they believed in him as the revealer of God. We get so focused, don't we, on how things have to happen in this world and how we believe things and how we approach things. That's to shatter that, to change our hearts and our way of thinking. Some folks got it and some didn't. In the miracle in today's story, Jesus works an unprecedented act of transformation, the water into rich, quality wine. It's a miracle of abundance. So often in our lives, in the lives of our families, in our church life, we operate out of a scarcity mentality. What if we run out? What if there's not enough? Why would we ever think, church, that the one who changed water into wine would leave us high and dry? It's a miracle of extravagance. Instead of asking what's the least we can get by with, shouldn't we be asking what's the best we can do? What's the best we have to offer to bring to the table? And I heard this story about a youth group in Alabama. It's been 15 or 20 years ago. It was a United Methodist Church. The carnival was in town. And so they had decided, the youth group had, that they would feed the carnival workers one night after everything had shut down. And so they got into this big debate about what they should serve them and how they should go about it. And after much conversation and much prayer, they said, well, we're going to serve steak instead of hamburgers. And we're going to use fine china and silverware and crystal glasses instead of paper and plastic. Extravagance is not always logical and it's not always practical. But it's always a sign of the way that God loves us. And it's a miracle of transformation. We sometimes forget that at the core of what we believe as Jesus people is that Jesus can still change a human heart. And I'm not just talking about a heart that we would consider evil or tainted or anything like that. I'm considering hearts of some of us sometimes that become, as the Old Testament writer said, like hearts of stone. And they're cold. And they're not open to the hurts and needs of folk around us. Jesus can still change a human heart. There's an old saying, or kind of a question, can a leopard change its spots? And the answer is, of course not. But God can change a leopard's spots. And God can change a human heart even to this day. And above all, perhaps this is a miracle of new possibilities. When we think we've got it all figured out and nothing can happen outside the little boundaries that we have set up, then here comes Jesus, the grace offered, the glimpse of glory provided, moves us outside of our conventional expectations. Imagine, if you will, the possibilities for your life, for the life of your family, for the life of this church. Imagine what things might have been like if we had stuck on the interstate, stayed off the back roads, and missed this little village of Cana. Amen.